Welcome to a new episode of Forward, a podcast where we meet researchers from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. I'm your host, Alison Innes. Welcome to our second unabridged episode. This episode of Forward, I'm going to bring you the full conversation I had with Dr. Leah Knight from the Department of English Language and Literature. I really enjoyed our conversation talking about bookscapes, early modern English, female poets, and how botany connects with books. It challenged me to think about books in a slightly different way, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Leah Knight, an associate professor with the Department of English Language and Literature. Dr. Knight studies early modern English poetry, prose, and the culture they emerged from. She's authored two books of Books and Botany in Early Modern England and Reading Green in Early Modern England, which were both awarded the annual book prize of the British Society for Literature and Science. More recently, Dr. Knight has been investigating the history of reading, examining the evidence of reading materials, habits, and experiences associated with Anne Clifford, who lived 1590 to 1676. Leah has also turned to the long-neglected manuscripts of the poet Hester Poulter, 1605 to 1678, and has launched a digital project with Dr. Wendy Wall of Northwestern University that was selected as the year's best project in digital scholarship by the Society for the Study of Early Modern Women and Gender in 2018. So welcome, Leah. Thank you so much, Alison. <laughs> it is a pleasure to have you here, and I am really excited to hear more about your past research and your current exciting research. And just before we uh, we started recording, you were mentioning that it feels like a long time ago that you that you worked on some of your botany work. But I'm really interested. What's this connection between plants and books? Yeah, I suppose there are any number of ways to answer that, and that's probably why I spent so much time trying to do so and still feel as if I barely touched upon it, although there were the two books, as you say, the first of which derived very directly from my dissertation and looked at 16th century plants and print cultures, where I wound up focusing my attention. I just noticed in the course of my graduate studies and studying early modern literature how frequently English writers were turning to tropes, to metaphors and similes related to plants in various ways in order to explain what they were doing as writers, in order to explain the way in which they, they read, the way in which they reproduced and collected and made use of and uh, made fruitful, a <laughs> word that we still use, of course, um, the, the, what they read. Um, and this was not a new set of tropes by any means in the period, but what I, it extends back to the classical era, what I was interested in since my focus was that, that time period, as I say, the 16th century or the early modern period in, in England, was the new ways in which those old tropes were being deployed um, by poets, but also by, strangely to me at first, botanists, people who were actually revolutionizing, changing, reforming the study of plants uh, in a way that we associate with science now, but which also had a very deep connection at the time with medicinal herbalism and spanned a lot of different fields that, again, we tend to separate, we tend to presume that they have always been separate, art and science, and the faculty of humanities, the faculty of sciences, and never the twain shall meet. Well, in fact, that's actually quite a new phenomenon, and that became very apparent when I studied these discourses, both technically literary and technically scientific, and saw the same deployment of metaphorical language and thinking in order to explain both poetry and plants. 
So what are some of those metaphors or tropes that come out? Um... Oh, there's so many that it actually does. It, I, mean, you, I'm a, I think I was first aware of these as a child. We had a book uh, in weirdly in this closet that I would pull out. It was called the, A Child's Garden of Verse, this 19th century deployment. And of course, the Victorians were keen on the language of flowers. And that was that, was that period sort of way of taking up that, again, very ancient conjunction, I guess, of, of plants and, and, and verse. Uh, in the period that I studied, there were changes in the study of plants, partly because of um, European travels and trade that brought new plants into play, often plants that were, in their view, nameless because they didn't know or understand indigenous names, um, or that they thought they knew the names of from antiquity, and then they were, um, so they were working with the linguistic material that we attach to plants um, as much as they were working with the plants themselves. So in other words, when we think about plants, we often think about nature, but at this time, as often when humans interact with things in the world, working with plants was as much an art, an art form, and a linguistic one, as it turns out, um, as it was a matter of encountering you know, nature in some un unvarnished form. Um, so I'm not sure if that really answers your question. There are so many. There are you know, forests of fancy. Um, I don't remember the specific. They, they appear in titles over and over again. And, um, uh, but not just titles. It sort of seems to run through, run deeply in the thinking about the commonness, the prop, common property that uh, writing uh, provided. Again, this is in an era before intellectual property rights were firmed up in ways that we recognize, even though dissolving again. <laughs> so there, it just it, it just seems well, so ripe for, for study from so many directions. Yes. And I suppose even the layout of the page sometime and in terms of title pages with with the thick fancy borders oh, yeah, and were motifs the, of leaves and that kind of thing. Yeah, the printer's fleuron, the very word leaf, of course, happens to be a pun in English as you know, in other languages as well yes. for, you know, the material uh, page as well as for uh, what, what appears on plants. So yeah, they're just, it, 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 I, I couldn't stop. It was almost hard to, it was really hard to, anyway, let, let's stop there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so you mentioned this book from childhood, and I think we had a version in my house, yeah. too. It was yeah. one of those just kind of standard books, I yeah. think, that, you know, everybody with children used to be given at some yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how did, how did you get into this idea of botany and the green world and books yeah. as a more serious research topic? Oh boy, as a more serious research topic. I was thinking about that on my way here, and I was thinking that it actually began in, it's funny how, I mean, we are who we are, right? And I was very much a bookish child, but also the kid who wanted to read the book in the tree. So I think it's always been a part of my life. And then it came to, uh, came to the fore when I was working toward, I think, my comprehensive exams, actually, in my PhD at Queen's University. And so, you know, when you're doing that, you're immersing yourself in the full range of the, the literary, if you're studying literature, the literary production of a period and its culture. And I suddenly realized, you know, we are always studying. We're studying Shakespeare and Sidney and Spencer and all these big names, canonical names, and that's fine. And they, of course, also participate in this culture. But when you start to look at, and this was something that was enabled in the early 20th century by things like new databases, new technology, like early English books online, which lets you delve into the full range of textual production in the period, including very obscure texts and also ones that aren't technically literary, such as herbals, which would probably never otherwise have risen to my notice. What I started to see was that there were ways of thinking about text uh, and that uh, 
could be got at by working with these metaphors, rather than assuming they are the dead metaphors, the boring children's book in the closet, rather than assuming that they are meaningless, as they might be for us, to see just how alive they were. So do you think the early modern writers were more in touch with their natural world than than we are. That, that seems to be one of the laments that comes up. People these days, they spend all their time on their screens and not. Well, indubitably, what surrounds us has changed over the centuries. I'm looking at the room we're in, and I'm <laughs> looking at all the plastic and metal, and I don't even know what that fuzzy fabric is over there. But indubitably, there's, there was more interpenetration. There was more of a proximity between you know, human uh, lives, daily lives, and culture, and then the natural surround that really was quite irresistible and remains so. I don't know if you've been to, to England lately, but I'm always amazed by the many places in which botanical life finds its way through these cracks in the stones and growing up out of the corners of people's apartments if they're too damp. And it just, it's, it's kind of, it, it is actually something that needs to be both historicized and then geographized to that extent, mm -hmm. to that extent. Um, that, the culture that I'm referring to is a different one that I was studying is a different one from the one you and I live in. And I don't know if people were more in touch with nature in a sort of touchy-feely, you know, potentially hippy-dippy sense or one that is, you know, I think that it simply was an in inevitable fact and, and factor and surround, but not just a surround in the sense of a background. It was also very much a figure in that ground. And, and that's why I think it was so handy for their figurative thinking. And I'm curious to know who's writing these herbals and that kind of thing. Are, are we looking at female authors or male authors? That's an interesting question. So I had to focus my attention at a certain point in order to finish my <laughs> dissertation. It was rather saddened to eventually confine myself to the 16th century and indeed to printed herbals. And when you look there, that genre is very much dominated by men because that was a genre very much... Uh, you know, built out of an academic education, a university education, which women did not, were not permitted to have. Um, so, I, but quite apart from that gender, another thing that came to light in my studies was how um, this botanical renaissance that was going on was really more of a reformation in the sense of the term that we applied to the, the reformation of the church in the, in the early 16th century. Um, and of course, this is extending beyond England's borders to the continental you know, preface, um, but this was a very international culture, right? The literary culture at the time, the learned literary culture and the Latinate one. Um, so yeah, it, they were often university educated men. Many of them were actually Protestant reformers themselves who saw their work with the book of nature as they would have called it. Again, a term that clearly implicates the two things. Uh, they saw their work with the book of nature as an extension of their work with this, the scripture, right? With, okay. with God's other uh, work and words. So. There, yeah, there were some surprises in terms of who was involved and what else they were up to in their lives. So why 16th, 17th century England? What, what is it about that period that resonated with you for some reason? That's actually a very good question. Well, I'll be honest, when I began my PhD, I was dragged kicking and screaming into the notion of specialization and that there could only be one period that I was either responsible for or allowed to study and think about and teach. And I did some strategic thinking about that. I thought I shall firmly position myself somewhere so that I can both cast my mind back credibly into the medieval period and antiquity if needed and look forward. It's early modernity after all, so why shouldn't I look at what comes next? So there was something strategic and, and resistant about that. However, as I went on, I became really intrigued by all the changes in the literary culture in England in that time, um, partly impelled by changes in, in 
the technological you know, factors like printing press, the movable type that came to Europe middle of the 15th century, but you know, only slowly migrated in any meaningful way to England and changed the game, really changed the game for writers, for readers, and for just everyone in relation to the, what I call the textual culture. So in terms of this textual culture then, was England fairly isolated or was the textual culture, were they engaging with texts and ideas more broadly? Oh, no, well, this is one of those. Well, it depends. <laughs> um, yes. England was, uh, in, in many ways, considered to have been more or less belated in terms of the flowering of its literary renaissance, you know, uh, compared to, say, Italian and so on. Um, however, there was a lot of interpenetration between England and the continent, uh, especially in the Latin uh, side of things, right? When, when people were writing in Latin and reading in Latin, when that was the lingua franca, that was the sort of passport language that would let you, you add your words and your works travel, that you know was a, a point of connection. So Britain, England was yeah. was a little bit behind where Europe was in in adopting. Yeah, the even in adopting, you know, the, the technology of the printing mm -hmm. press comes later, a couple of decades later, okay. and then there's just one or two, and frankly, they produce quite hideous work for a long time when the people or counterparts in Europe are producing, beginning to produce quite beautiful things. Um, I suppose that was another reason why the 16th century was interesting to me, or why I wound up honing in on it for that first book in particular. I recognize that all of these things, these changes in the botanical culture and the literary culture in the 16th century, they were nascent then, and they just exploded in the 17th century in all sorts of fascinating ways, but ways that are still more familiar to us. And so the work didn't seem as pressing because they remain more familiar, more popular. Many people have heard of tulip mania, that sort of botanical phenomenon in Holland and, and surrounding areas. Uh, people are more aware even of 17th century texts, partly because of the way the printing technology changed, or not the technology, but the approach to it, the print culture. So many 16th century texts in English are presented in this absolutely god-awful, we'd call it a font, typeface. It's called black letter, um, Gothic sometimes, and it looks like if you've ever received a very, very stodgy wedding invitation, it looks like the calligraphy all slanted and thick, and each letter looks almost like the last, so it's very hard to, to discern what's being said. It's hard to, to read for us. Um, and partly for that reason, I think a lot of later texts, and it really isn't that much later, by the 17th century, the text, the, the typeface being used predominantly in England is called is Roman, and we still use Times New. Roman. It's a very familiar, it's very accessible. So I sort of felt like I was pushing things back just far enough by going there. Um, although my, my more recent projects focus on the 17th century and I certainly have no aversion to that. <laughs> I want to come to, you, to your work that you've done with Anne Clifford. Yeah. Um, because I, I saw you give a talk a year or two ago now about this idea about bookscapes. And I thought that was really fascinating because I'm used to thinking about books as like we study them for the words that are inside them. Mm -hmm. But you seem to be suggesting that books themselves we can think about as objects and think about differently. So I'm, I just want you to talk about that. Oh, thank you. Well, actually, it does present a useful segue from my previous work, although it took me a while to realize that, and I was a little alarmed at one point when I thought, I've been working all this time on plants and so on. Now I want to know more about this person, Anne Clifford, about the books she read. What on earth could the connection possibly be? But there is one. And as you say, it's partly to do with the material book, with its inhabitation of a space, 
same space as we do. And when those books are so frequently as like noticed troped as, figured as, as plant material, there is actually more of a connection there uh, than, than is first apparent. When I first came to Brock, actually, with a few colleagues here, I ran a couple of conferences called Greenscapes. And it only occurred to me in retrospect that that was a sort of uh, connection between my previous work on, on the botanical and my more recent work on, on books and the history of reading. That's the field in which my work on Clifford um, uh, appears. And some of it has appeared most recently in a book that I co-edited with my colleague Elizabeth Sauer and with Micheline White, who's at Carleton, called Women's Bookscapes. And uh, that's where, uh, I guess, we do the most work to define that term. Um, it, it probably looks like we, we've stolen it from someone named James Raven, who has a book of the same title, but in fact, it was one of those moments of, I don't know what you call it, convergence, or, or noticing, Serendipity. Actually. Serendipity, I don't know. There's no intellectual property in that sort of thing, is there? <laughs> That's how words come to be. Um, bookscape is in a, it's a coining for us to the extent that, yeah, it refers to not just the sort of surround, the textual surround uh, that is in our world that, you know, we tend, we frequently tend not to notice. I'm looking again around this room and realizing that even though it's bookless, it's still, it's by no means text-free, right? And we're still governed by that. Um, but Bookscapes uh, is about the mentality as well that you carry with you, in, within you, informed by the books and the text, the, the reading and the writing in your life. So it has a kind of flexibility in our usage of it. It's not just about a, a geographical term, which, which it can be, you can use it that way. Um, I think we were influenced partly by, there are many ways in which the, the, that term scape can be a suffix that can help us sort of relate to media in our lives because of the way in which they suffuse our existence, right? They are outside of us, but they're also inside of us. And so is a landscape. We think of a landscape as a genre in painting, as something we look at, there it is on the wall, or as something out in nature that, oh, look at that beautiful landscape when we stand at the edge of the escarpment. But in fact, it's in us as much as it's out there. And the more we know about perception and, and so on, and subjectivity, I'm thinking of that. But the, what is it, the dress, you know, is it is it yellow and... It, uh, golden, golden, white, golden white or, or blue and black. Or blue and black, yeah. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about <laughs> yeah. that the other day. Um, yeah, so getting at um, that the perception of uh, the ways in which the presence of books and texts in our lives is part of what that work is about as well. So why Anne Clifford? Oh. Who, who was she? Why <laughs> Anne Clifford? Who was she? Well, again, it's such a learning process. I actually think the strangest thing, that she came to be my focus serendipitously, somebody, and I still don't know who, it must have been a colleague, put her book, her diary, in my departmental mailbox. And I was looking at it one day in my office thinking, what's this? Why is this here? And as I flipped through, I'd never read this before. It's understood to be one of the earliest uh, diaries written by an English woman, uh, a secular diary is how it's considered. Um, and so I was reading it and thinking, my god, this is dull as dishwater, isn't it? Why couldn't you have written a more interesting diary if you're going to bother? And I learned more about her and that, in fact, this diary, which we think of as a genre that's very personal or private and for expressing one's emotions, again, we have to historicize it and in her case, personalize it because it became apparent that that diary was really useful to her decades-long litigation in pursuit of uh, her identity, of her lands and titles that she saw them, that were her possessions, which had she'd been disinherited from by her father. She was mm -hmm. his only child, and he, instead of uh, naming her as heir in his will, shipped things over to his brother and his heir's male, as they put it, masculine, you know, only the, yeah. only the male line. Anyways, um, as part of this, this diary, she records her encounters with 
these various male authorities battling this injustice as she saw it. But she also records the occasional more quotidian things, what she was wearing, what she was eating, who she was visiting, and what she read. And it was those moments that stood out to me and made me think, this is a way in which I can bring the other half of humanity back into focus in my research. As I said, when I was working on the 16th century herbals, they are by men, they are not necessarily for men. They are frequently read by women, and we know this, owned by women, annotated, um, used by women who were frequently medical practitioners in their homes and in their communities. And yet that didn't feature largely in my research for whatever reason in that, in that area. Here was a moment and a way in which I felt that I could, in good faith and with the kind of enthusiasm that makes me do good work, bring women's involvement in textual culture front and center in my work, which I really wanted to do at that point in my life. So she was a noblewoman then. Oh, yes. Yes. So Certainly. she had a lot of books. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she was. She was a noblewoman. She was born to an earl and a countess, so she's a bigwig. Um, and she has her own, no doubt, collection of a lot of books, but is also just exposed to an enormous number of books, both from her father, her mother, her peers, the men. She socialized like a madwoman, just all over the place. She had, by the time she inherited those properties, which she eventually did, oh, good. in the 1640s, <laughs> she won, but not because she won in a court of law, only because the men died, they're all dead. Someone has to take over. Uh, she had six castles, and she would migrate amongst them after she'd renovated them because they were all falling down. No doubt she had a lot of books, but not just books. That's the other thing she had. She wrote many, many letters, and she uh, made these inscriptions on plaques that she embedded in the walls of these castles, some of which are still there today. Um, so her, Im her embeddedness in a really rich and personal, but also sort of largely set, like a very 17th century literary or textual culture, it seems so emblematic. In many cases, she is treated as a kind of textbook case in the history of reading, which is a field that, again, has sort of seen its stock soar since the start of this century. So she's, she's much studied for her role as a reader and for the role of reading in her life. Um, I wanted to kind of consolidate that work and also amplify it and make it more... I wanted to make it speak, I suppose. Reading is often silent, as we know, and reading leaves few traces. And so even in that diary where I found these remarks by her, I read Ovid's Metamorphoses, I read Sidney's Arcadia, she would leave it at that. And I, I was intrigued and frustrated and motivated by that. What can we do with this? We don't have uh, extensive annotations in the margins of your copies of your books, Anna Clifford, so what do we do with the fact that you read this book and not that one? You read Sydney, but not, apparently, Shakespeare. Um, what do we do? And I'm still working on figuring that out about oh. a decade later. <laughs> and I know you take your students in your class up to the archives here, mm -hmm. at, in up in the library, mm -hmm. and you get them looking at old books. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what they're doing and what you're, you're doing with that? Yeah, what I try to do with those assignments is make the impression upon them that when they study a text in edited form, in an anthology, often in a textbook, um, maybe in an excerpted form or modernized, that that is, that is a text and that is one version of uh, the text or the title that they, they think they are reading, but it is only one. And one of the ways to make that most vivid is to bring them back to 
when that text first manifested itself in the world, say in an early printed book, and um, you know a Bible from 1609, or um, Raleigh's History of the World, you know published from you know he was imprisoned in the Tower of London, but out it comes anyways, or one of those herbals. We actually happen to have two copies of Gerard's herbal uh, up in special collections in rare books. Um, when they encounter those as individual material objects, much like meeting a person. It's completely different from reading a, about a person. Um, they're, they're meeting it in all its material individuality, turning its pages, finding the marginal notes, finding little things stuffed between the pages, confronting simply the size of some of these books, the monumental size of them. Um, and I mean, many students have spoken of it as quite a transformative experience. So I, I always value that. It's my favorite part. That's great. Um... Yeah, I've, I've seen some of those books when you've had them out with students. And it, it's, it's, it's amazing to think of like this ginormous book and then somebody <laughs> consulting it or reading it and, and how they would just hold it or if they would even hold mm -hmm. it or if they had, yeah. Book furniture that would surround yeah. it. What if you wanted to be taking notes about it? Where Yeah, all of that sort of thing is, is fascinating to me and is part of the, the yeah. idea of the bookscape as well mm -hmm. and that it needs to be historicized, yeah. So then you move from Anne Clifford into another, into a, another woman, a poet, mm -hmm. um, Hester Poulter. Am I saying that correctly? I like the way you say it. Oh. I mean, I don't think anyone knows, so I think we can say Poulter. I quite like that. We tend to say Hester Poulter. It's quite a funny name. It does kind of make you giggle the first few times you say it. Um, and yes, I feel as if I first adopted Anne Clifford and then into my life pops another. Uh, Hester Poulter um, arrived in my life, I think it was in 20... Oh, goodness. 15. I didn't really bring Hester Poulter into my life. Wendy Wall did. Wendy is a, is a professor at Northwestern University, and I had been in a faculty seminar with her at the Shakespeare Association of America at one of these conferences where you share your ideas, and, and it had just sparked uh, the idea of a collaboration. And the collaboration was based on another seminar for that conference called What to Do with a Found Object, I think, or with Found, I can't remember. It was, the idea was when you have a recovery of something that's been lost in the archives that hasn't been read for hundreds of years and now you realize this is really interesting, an interesting artifact from that period, how do we begin to integrate that into our accounts of that period when we teach students or when we write books? Where does this, how do we make it fit? How do we popularize it? And so we invited all sorts of other scholars to find ways to do that specifically with the manuscript of Hester Poulter, uh, which was as far as we know, unread between the late 17th century, uh, when she died, and the 1970s, when it came up for auction, was bought by a university, University of Leeds, and then seems to have disappeared again from view, partly owing to cataloging matters, back into view in the 1990s, and scholars like start to attend to it. And it's this magnificent uh, bound volume, a fair copy, in a lovely script, over 120 original poems by another noblewoman, Hester Poulter-Ball, that she's, uh, who's living from 1605 to 1678, so roughly at the same time as Clifford. Um, but whereas my interest with Clifford is in her reading, uh, my interest with Poulter is in, is in her writing, although th there's a lot of crossover between those, as you might imagine. Yeah. So what do we know about her as a person? What do we know about Poulter as a person? We're learning more every day, I can tell you Excellent. that much. Yeah, including her birth date, which was, I mean, if you look in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, it still says her birth date was 1595. We now know, I think, 
with reasonable certainty, she was born 10 years after that, which is not a trivial amount of time. Um, so we're learning more every day just this summer, uh, actually as a result of publishing the, her work in what we call the Poulter Project online, which is an open access site. We were contacted by an Australian scholar, Carrie Plunkett, who provided us with the information that's let us confirm the date of her marriage, which was 1620. And again, these might seem like the most trivial facts when she was born, when she was married, but given how little we often know about women from this period, literally any fact, almost like literally any text, is, is incalculably valuable. Uh, and that becomes truer with Poulter, partly because a lot of her verse has an autobiographical cast to it. She's frequently reflecting on her daughters, uh, the death of her children. She had 15, almost all of them died before she did. Uh, and she uh, lived through the civil wars in England in the 1640s. And you know, so when you're, when you're working with a writer who, whose work has that autobiographical cast to it, these sorts of facts also come into play. Yeah. Yeah. Poulter was born in 1605 in Ireland, but she was an English woman and returns to and is raised in England and marries uh, a man who owns a property called Broadfield in Hertfordshire. And she spends, it appears, most of her adult life on this country estate, Broadfield, uh, where she frequently speaks of being confined. And her confinement there could have many reasons, partly to do with her 15 pregnancies and the illnesses that ensued before and after, partly to do with perhaps other illnesses, uh, also to do with the civil wars that led to um, the confinement frequently of royalists like Poulter in the 1640s, uh, when you know they, they were not the popular uh, crowd and it was not necessarily safe to be moving about. She writes about that sense of confinement, but what's fascinating is that in that confining circumstance, she's motivated to find such freedom as she can, partly through her verse, and she speaks very movingly about that, through her verse and through her mental universe that she enlarges um, by imagining herself flying up into space and revolving with the stars, as well as dissolving into dust and then revolving to different atomic forms. She has this most amazingly wide-ranging mind, despite, apparently, being so uh, limited and isolated uh, in her person, in her body. So that's, it's very interesting to think about how Anne Clifford was using words and her writing to literally put her name on her castles mm -hmm. and her property and mm -hmm. say, I was here. And, and Hester is using it to, to cope with and, and reflect on and internalize what she's experiencing. Is that... Yeah, absolutely. Is that on the right track? If, if I were yeah. ever to think of comparing their writing, which I, for some reason I haven't done, simply because <laughs> they literally they're like apples and oranges, they're yeah. chalk and cheese. Um, Clifford is a documentarian. She's a historiographer. Uh, she has an enormous attachment to facts, where things happened, when they happened. It's absolutely mind-bogglingly tedious at times. Poulter is much more of a lyrical lyrically minded person, an elegiacally minded person, a figuratively, but also a, what we would call scientifically minded person, to the extent that she interests herself in theories of the day, the latest theories from astronomy and through uh, you know, physics, uh, atomism, all sorts of facets, and, and ideas to do with, again, plants, coming back to plants, and that you can take plants and you can calcinate them, you can burn them down to their very essence and then revive them. So she's really engaged with the material reality around her, but also theoretical treatments of it in a way that 
would not interest Clifford, as far as I can tell, at all, even when I think about her reading, let alone her writing. Hmm. They're very different. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine a dinner party. Oh, well, well, well. <laughs> I can't see that working out. <laughs> so, but you know what? I think that's actually one of the neat things about studying both of them. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. Because so often we group women writers and then expect them all to behave in the same way <laughs> because they're women and they're writers and they're women writers. So there's this category. And the more you study them as individuals, the more depth you get into them from whatever angle you can, based on whatever documents remain, whatever facts can be ascertained, the more you see that there's, there's not a lot of rationale for that quite, quite a lot of the time. And that it is, it's in their distinctions that they, well, they are most themselves. Yeah, it's, it, it sometimes feels like it's so we can put the chapter in the textbook mm. that is women mm -hmm. in and there's our representation. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So how many poems do we have from Hester? Um, it depends how you count them. And so that's why I always say, this is my, my phrase, 120 odd uh, poems. Uh, the person who really first put them on the map and counted them for us that, uh, was Alice Airdley, who came up with the first printed edition and came out with that in 2014, based on her earlier dissertation work. And we've tried to, I mean, because our work in the Poulter Project, our editions are you know, really following on, on hers. We, we did the original work, went back, consulted the manuscript, photographed it, transcribed it, and so on. Um, but we also recognize that we're, with Airdley, part of an emergent tradition for Poulter, a scholarly tradition of thinking about her. And so we've tried to keep that, those same numbers in play in order to make the conversations about her verse more feasible. Yep. So this project that you are working on with Wendy Ball, introduce it to us. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. Okay. The Poulter Project uh, emerged out of uh, the seminar that Wendy and I did uh, where we were asking people to reflect on different ways of incorporating Hester Poulter's manuscripts, newly brought to light, um, into our discussions, into, into courses, into op-ed pieces, different ways of bringing her further to light rather than, because so often what we find is that these sorts of um, figures or their works are found and there's a great big celebration and hooray hurrah, everyone loves a new find, the moment of discovery is validated and valorized, but what comes after that? It's the hard work. Um, and one form of hard work we decided to take was to edit her work, not because it hadn't been done, Alice Airdley's work was out there and is very valuable, but in part because we found that very rapidly it fell out of print. And what once was found was once again lost. Um, now, as it happens, there's a happy ending there, which is that her work is back in print now, um, more or less at the same time as our editions in the Poulter Project came to light. In November 2018, we launched the site. It's not complete, and we launched it in that state deliberately in order to attract uh, the contributions of more editors. It's very much a collaboration. Wendy Wall and I direct it, but we have, at this point, it must be over a dozen contributors, both of what we call amplified editions, which are elaborate, uh, often lengthy, sometimes more scholarly editions that are designed to contrast with the ones that Wendy and I made as a kind of baseline. We call them elemental editions, they have minimal notes, and they're modernized, and they're really meant as a sort of easy on-ramp for a first-time reader of Poulter. Um, but we set those in conjunction and in parallel with these amplified editions, which come from a whole host of contributors, um, and with the transcriptions of the manuscript, which are just much uh, sort of a more technical way of, of looking at it, and images of the manuscript, page by page images of the manuscript itself. Um, so it's an open access website, and we've both used it in our courses as others, and uh, 
it's been really rewarding. It's been a wonderful experience and connecting with scholars all around the world. So what's your long-term goal or your hope for this project? Well, our long-term goal is certainly to finish the editions, but not just them. We also, and again, this is one of the affordances of the digital medium, uh, we pair those with what we call curations, which are sort of virtual exhibits of both visual and verbal materials, so other texts that seem to resonate with Clifford's, or uh, images from the period, so portraits or drawings that again bring to life some of the things she's talking about that are no longer familiar to us. So those curations we'd like to have for all of the poems. We'd also like to have a, a, a pedagogical arm of the site in which we, as I said, we and many other uh, instructors we know of have already incorporated this material into our courses and that we can share that again as part of the larger collaborative approach uh, of the site. Yeah. Um, so I was just thinking as well as, as you were talking about having the um, the digital images. And I was thinking back to our physical books that we were talking about earlier and thinking about the physicality of books. Um, how, how is it different as a scholar when you're working with an image or copy compared, even if it's like a, you know, a nice photograph yeah. compared to that original? Oh boy. <laughs> it's, they are different and they are both necessary. That's one of the interesting things that I've found. Uh, so as I say, I did visit the book in Leeds with my camera and so I was there and was able to photograph each and every one of its pages in the most high resolution that I could come up with <laughs> with whatever camera I had and brought those images home to work with them. And that was great. Uh, but what you also find is that that's often not enough. And so we would zoom in to the highest possible resolution to try to determine what is that word or what is that letter, that single character. or And sometimes it was simply impossible to tell. It didn't have to do with resolution. It has to do with, you know, if you can check on the reverse of a, of a leaf, you can see if it's bleed through, the ink has bled through from that side or if it is a mark on that. It's sort of technical and that one level mm -hmm. trivial. But uh, that's the kind of work, that's the kind of nitty gritty work that needs to be done when you're editing a text. Um, and so it was a real lesson in the value, again, of those rare books rooms and in maintaining the integrity of those material originals, no matter uh, how good our you know, facsimile technology might grow. Do you ever wonder what scholars like 500 years from now, looking back at our textual um, relationship with print, because it's so different and because we're maybe um, with so much being digital, mm -hmm. we kind of lose some of that physicality mm -hmm. of, of print. We lose it. Although the digital, of course, has its own physical habitation. Yes, and that, that's again, true. it's so easy for us to forget, right? <laughs> it's like, again, the figure ground relationship with plants and so on. It's there. Uh, the challenge is, will it survive or will it survive in any way that is accessible, that is legible in the future? Um, and I have no idea. All I know is that when I was, you know, in the 1990s, when I first got my email account, I was like, oh, an email account, what is this? And then I started writing my various screens. I thought, oh, I'll have these, this correspondence with my friends forever and always. I don't know where it is. I don't know how I'd find it. And that's just a few decades later. So yeah. I don't know what the future holds, even for a digital site like the Poulter Project. But one thing that I take heart in is the emergence of very open access, Creative Commons based licensing of the intellectual property associated with scholarship like this. Because I think that is the source of its survival, is through its uptake and transformation into other media and other forms. And that is something that I'm really proud of with this site, is that it is open access and that we you know, license the content in that Creative Commons way. I think that's 
uh, it's not the same as a physical copy surviving in a rare books room, but it's something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and especially um, with our global perspective on things, but then also trying to balance that with accessibility to information. And not everybody, you said it was in Leeds, was the mm-hmm. original. Not everybody can drop everything, go to Leeds to check something out on a page, right? right. So, And in fact, the study of um, you know, rare manuscripts, rare books in general, used to have a very elitist cast about it. It still does. Uh, for often good reasons, many of those rare books rooms have very stringent rules. You can't even enter them without a letter of introduction from somebody who's more important than you. And uh, you, you know, leave all your belongings locked outside. And they literally, if you go to Leeds and want to look at her manuscript, they will weigh it in a scale when you when they give it to you, and when you return it, they will weigh it again to ensure that all of the pages are still there, down to the microgram. And these are rare books, these are expensive books, There's, they're, they're fragile in lots of ways, susceptible to light and the oils in your hands. So there's lots of good reasons for them to be treated with the care that they are. But you're right that, that that can lead to a kind of elitism, which again is one of the wonderful affordances of the digital media transformation is that we can start to expose more people, our students, and so on to these things. I think that Brock is quite remarkable in how open and kind it is to in sharing our, our rare books with with our students. Not every uh, institution, for various reasons, can actually be as open as we are, and I, I'm always delighted by David Sharon and, and how, how warmly he welcomes us up there. Yeah, I'm really interested in the idea of these botany books being written by men and being used by women. I did my master's thesis on women in the Hippocratic corpus and women as healers and thinking about how the men constructed themselves as the authority. But they were largely drawing on their sources yeah. were probably Frequently. the women themselves yeah, who yeah. remain unnamed. Oh, and then yeah. and then they canonize it yeah. and then this becomes yeah. truth or, yeah. or the a authority. authority. A masculine yeah. authority. Yeah, no, no, I agree with that. And again, it, it, okay, so a couple things. First of all, if I had been dealing with the manuscript culture instead of the print culture, it would have been a completely different story. And my answer probably yeah. would have been <laughs> different too. Because yeah, absolutely, yeah. women kept these recipe books. In fact, that's something Wendy works on is you know medical and other kinds of recipes. Yeah. And so yeah, I totally agree. But there's, yeah, I, I found it really interesting. I mean, <coughs> I can't remember if it was in my book, but it was in my dissertation. You know, you edit things like that. But I think I had a section called the simplest women because that was a phrase used by John Gerard to refer to these women he consulted as sources for his botanical knowledge, uh, but did not name, as you say. And he would frequently name the male sources, not just name them, but sometimes provide their professions or even their addresses. You could follow up and find them in their gardens where they were growing this stuff. They had a named presence. The women were assimilated, pluralized, not named. And in calling them the simplest women, also sort of, you know, ranked obviously low. What's funny is though, of course, the word simple is a term for a herb, right? Mm-hmm, so they're also mm-hmm. simply women, like sim- they, would, they would work with herbs. Um, so yeah, it was a matter that interested me at the time when I was doing this research for my dissertation. Uh, but I feel almost as if I just, I couldn't find a place for it. I couldn't yeah. process it. I couldn't fit it into the narrative. And that's partly because they couldn't either, and they mm. didn't, and they didn't want to. And so maybe s- to some extent in turning from that work or the approach I took to it or the approach they did to now this focus on Anne Clifford and Hester Poulter and indeed just early modern women's uh, reading and writing more generally, I feel like I'm, I'm redressing something, not just in, yeah. in that history, but in, in my own maybe scholarly history or and 
Yeah, and that feels right. Was was Hester unusual in, in being a female poet? What? Pu- right, publishing. Oh, she didn't publish. Oh, she didn't publish. Oh, maybe okay. this is important. Yes, this, this is, is important. Very important. <laughs> yes, actually. And in fact, Anne Clifford did not publish. By Hers any was a diary. Case. Well, she wrote a diary, but she also wrote a massive family history, um, and you know, writers of things like that. None of which uh, ever made it out of manuscript, nor would she have wanted them to. Okay. Um, and. Uh, this is partly because of something that, I mean, it's been debated, but it was discussed uh, by scholars in the mid-20th century as the stigma of print, which is that when this new technology appeared uh, in their midst uh, and allowed for uh, text to be produced en masse and popularized and handled by anybody, um, that people of rank were not comfortable with this. We're not comfortable with that, it, 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 and particularly for women. It could be associated with, well, I mean, you're selling yourself, aren't you? You're, and the, the form of prostitution. So women's position in print culture was very different, very vexed for a long time, certainly into the 17th century. And not just in print culture, but in relation to writing as well. Uh, women in this period were way more likely to be taught to read than to write, and the skills were taught separately and in sequence. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, th- yeah, there's a... Right down at that basic level of education, there's a sort of distinction. Then in terms of whether a woman writer would keep her works in manuscript, circulate them that way, or in print, there is uh, a difference. And again, this has to do with rank as well. So women of high rank, just like men of high rank, were less likely to publish. Um, and But there was a very active culture of manuscript circulation. So the fact that Poulter's verse, and not just her verse, but she also has an unfinished romance in that same volume, the fact that it wasn't in print doesn't necessarily mean that nobody ever read it. And in fact, increasingly, the scholarship is suggesting that she had around Broadfield, maybe at Broadfield, her home, as well as in London, which wasn't that far off, um, a kind of coterie or community of fellow writers and readers and people who are part of the literary community at the time, the royalist literary community in particular, in the 1640s, and that some of her work may have had a life, a public life, through manuscript circulation. So that that is an important distinction. Is, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it, did they practice anything like um, like the salon idea? Uh, sorry. Yeah, like salon. Yeah, and, yeah. Where people would come together and would read or... Yes, they certainly did. I mean, you know, there, in Henry VIII's court, there was a, there's, there are manuscripts associated with that in which the, the works, the poems of people like Thomas Wyatt and Henry Howard are preserved in the hands of, of women, right, of ladies at court who were part of those kinds of coteries, coteries. And that did continue absolutely into the 17th century. And as I say, there, just I think it was 2018, 2018 that someone published uh, a paper finally sort of really pushing back against Poulter's poetic claims to being so isolated and saying, you know, we could actually check that. Uh, we can see who lived nearby. We can find in the cor- their correspondence what kinds of relations they had with their neighbors and so on. So again, even if that's all we have from her, we can sometimes triangulate the information. And again, she's writing poetry. She's not writing an autobiography. And so we shouldn't always take these claims to um, isolation at face value as facts. That's not necessarily the role they played in her life. Um, so th- yeah, there's lots of work to be and done. And she could be speaking to a feeling of isolation yeah. compared to mm-hmm. actual physical. Mm-hmm. Yep. isolation as Absolutely. well. So that, that must be really challenging working with that, whereas with something like with a diary that's very facts-oriented, and I did this and I went here and read this, whereas she's 
writing more creatively. Yeah, absolutely. And figure, figuring genres. out what is the what is her voice and what yeah. what is just the text that she's constructing. But yeah, and also what are the conventions, right? What are the uh, verse? Uh, she's writing in genres that are governed by literary conventions with which she would like to cohere, partly to make herself understood, partly to show off potentially her education, all sorts of things, right? So it's, yeah, it's not a simple matter of trying to figure out, you know, she says she's alone and then we determine that indeed she was, you know, it's not as simple as that, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining me today and for this wonderful conversation. And we will be providing links to your to the Poulter Project um, in our show footnotes um, for our listeners as well. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Allison. Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, and past episodes on our website, brocku.ca/humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so please join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Our sound design and editing is by Serena Atella, and theme music is by Kaladamam. The credits have been read by me, Serena Atella. Special thanks to Brock University's Makerspace and Brock University Marketing and Communications for Studio and Web Support. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.